1: Hello and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Rdjan. Today I'm joined by Sophie Ganek assistant professor in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University. We will be talking about her book, Disposition and Descent: Immigrants and the Struggle for Housing in Madrid, recently published by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much, Dr. Ganek, for joining us today. Uh, at the New Books Network, we like to start by getting to know our authors. So, could you tell us about your background as an urban scholar and how did you conceive of this book?
0: Yeah, uh, thank you for having me on the podcast, um, and I'm delighted to talk about the book. Um, so, I, I kind of as a, as a teenager into college, was interested in urban issues um, and and then also started doing research on and in Spain. Um, and I did a whole undergraduate project on the urbanization of Madrid under the Franco regime, some of which actually makes it into this book. Um, and so like, yes, your useful um, research adventures can sometimes you know come out and print many many years later um, and then you know I was so taken with Madrid that I lived there for three years after I graduated from college um, and it was right in the moment of the the Spanish boom um, kind of this period between more or less 2000 and 2008 in which um, there was absolutely rapid urbanization uh, projects taking place and and just the kind of wholesale transformation of the city as it was really becoming a major European capital. Uh, And it was at the same time that, and really, you know, because these kinds of urbanization projects needed labor uh, to build them, that you saw this huge influx of immigrants. And so Spain Basically, in the course of under a decade, it goes from having under a million foreign-born residents to over five or almost six million foreign-born residents. So it's a very massive um, and kind of qualitative and quantitative shift. Um, and and it was at the same time that I was living there and, and observing kind of how difficult it was to get a house and and find a place to live. Um, you know, I was a renter and 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 yet, yeah, everybody was buying, but the prices seemed extremely high uh, and and so I wondered, you know, as you see this kind of emergence of a new uh immigrant class, how where and you know by what means these kinds of, this this new population was finding um, housing within the question of housing is central to to you know just how we live in I mean that sounds redundant but like how we can kind of survive and thrive in the city and so I was observing these kinds of transformations taking place with the knowledge that the housing market you know just more or less from a kind of anecdotal perspective um and then from my own perspective as a renter uh Realizing how fraught the, the urban housing market in Madrid was, that I, when I went back to graduate school, I was thinking, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to do some sort of project that looked at um, immigration and housing within the Madrid context. Then um, I was doing pre dissertation field work and really intended to do a whole other project that was on migrant squatters. In the city, um, in June of two thousand eleven, which was I got to Madrid, you know, about uh, about a couple of weeks after the occupation of the central square and the the beginning of the, what's called the fifteen M movement, uh, which was this massive kind of outpouring of activist and you know populist energy, and very soon after I got there, this question of evictions emerged and it was actually on, um, I think it was on, I think it was exactly 10 years ago tomorrow on June 15th, 2011, that the the anti-eviction movement in Madrid blocked the first eviction. And it was about 500 people showed up to uh, prevent an eviction from taking place. And the eviction was supposed to occur, the the household that was being kind of defended in that moment was uh, an immigrant household. The man was a Lebanese baker out of work and his wife also out of work was Bulgarian. And so, I, I wasn't there, but I read about it in the newspaper and I remember thinking this that's the story there's something going on here first of all how how did this you know very modest household you know kind of working class immigrants be able to afford an apartment that in a in a kind of explosively expensive uh urban property market and then what was going on that you see this huge outpouring of popular support uh in an effort to uh, keep a family in their home, keep an immigrant family in their home, right? Uh, which also goes against the kind of common narrative of rising xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment in a time of economic crisis. And so it was from there, that's kind of the seed that then, you know, I began to follow as uh, as I made my way through my PhD and, and then, you know, and through an An extended period of ethnographic field work. Mm -hmm.
1: That makes perfect sense. And um, I want to ask you a little bit more about this immigration side of the story Mm -hmm. um, you describe in your book. So in the book, you develop important critiques of the integration discourse accompanying immigration debates. And as you do so, Politics and lived experiences of housing and debt provide a critical lens for you, which you know comes across beautifully in your answer to my previous question. Um, so, can you speak to what housing and debt tell us about immigration and integration in Madrid and beyond?
0: Sure. So, you know, I I look at the project of integration as fundamentally a political project, and a political project of kind of crafting immigrant subjects into, you know, or or kind of bringing immigrant subjects into some sort of idea of the mainstream or of the dominant culture. Um, And in many ways, the way in which it's conceived of politically and by policy actors and, and statecraft is a deeply politicized, right? Of, of, and B can be somewhat divorced from the reality of everyday life, right? Um, and so because about certain variables and, and programs, as if they existed in a vacuum. And here, obviously, I'm, I'm I'm, glossing over a lot of very nuanced and important work that's been done on the integration of immigrants, uh, particularly in a European context. But I think fundamentally, first of all, fundamentally a lot of immigration is, you know, migrants are coming to cities, right? Uh, increase, you know, just as we're all, you know, becoming a more urban society across the globe. Um, and so we have to then think about the settlement of immigrants within this, these kinds of urban contexts as occurring against broader landscapes of and cultural currents uh, that affect how we all are, are living in and working in cities. And I think Contemporarily, and we certainly see this now with uh, COVID and and discussions of emerging from the pandemic, that housing uh, and unequal housing markets and landscapes are, you know, very much shape the outcomes of, um, of people's daily lives in cities. And this is true if you're, you know, a native member of the working class, if you are an immigrant, even if you're a, a, you know, a member of the ostensible middle class, that we're all in one way or another struggling uh, to find adequate and affordable housing. Related to housing, of course, is the question of finance. And you have, you have somebody like Raquel Ronick in the Sao Paulo, um, scholar of housing and former UN rapporteur on housing, discussing what she calls the empire of finance that that kind of shapes our housing landscapes. And so it's also these questions of credit and debt and extraction that very much shape everyday life. And so we have to understand the kind of trajectories of immigrants and and their processes of settlement as being very much shaped by and conditioned by um, questions of housing and 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 it's you know the, it's financial entanglements.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you know, in one aspect of the book that I appreciate is how you show us that consent for that is actively produced by political actors. And, you know, doing so sutures home ownership to being a good migrant or successful migrant. So can you tell us how good financial subjects or good migrant subjects are created in Spain? And what does the process by which homeowner- homeowners are made Tell us about urban governance and liberal democracies.
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. I I think uh, I'm going to take it, I'm going to kind of disarticulate Mm -hmm. it a little bit. (laughs) First of all, it's a question of home ownership, which I very much, I was trying to resist the urge to just describe or analyze these actors as kind of caught in some sort of, grand scheme to wrest equity from mm-hmm. them, right? But I wanted to understand what were their own aspirations and wants and desires that were pro- prompting them to become homeowners. Um, and, that, you know, I think critical scholarship in partic- and, and, you know, those of us on the left can be kind of dismissive of that that urge to become homeowners. And really, actually, when, as I got deeper into my analysis, I realized it wasn't just, you know, people weren't buying houses just because they had some sort of dream of, you know, the little white picket fence, as we think about in the United States, but it's actively related to their own kind of calculations of financial risk and reward and an idea of a future return on investment that it seems, you know, And and part of this, too, was my trying to understand how it was that a, you know, no money down mortgage for a 200,000 euro flat was a sound, you know, was perceived as a sound financial investment Uh, because it's very easy for us either to think of the immigrant or even the, the member of the native working class who's making that decision as either a dupe being fooled by the system or as you know, the, the right-wing rhetoric would then be that, oh, no, they're taking advantage of the system. But it, it's neither one of those explanations actually illuminates anything, right? <laughs> um, and so within the, the particularities of the Spanish case, um, one of the things I talk about is the fact that You know, in in Spain, there's basically no, well, we might have our own kind of stereotypes of, you know, sand, sun, and sangria, right? And bullfights as like being part of Spanish culture. Because of the fraught nature of historical Spanish nationalism, there's not one vision of the kind of model citizen. However, there is this overwhelming uh, predominance of owner-occupied housing as the dominant form of housing tenure. You know, when in, in the 2000s, it was over 80% of people were living in owner-occupied homes. So it's kind of like, that's one thing that you could point at that is, say, typically Spanish and is uh, deeply enmeshed in Spanish culture and, um, and also in, in you know, forms of investment and forms of economic growth, um, which of course, as I talk about in the book, emerges out of a very particular historical um, trajectory of uh, planning and policy. Uh, and so, and then, you know, all of the attendant ideologies that around home ownership, around saving and, um, and you know, being able to make monthly payments and being able to care for a home. So all of those then also get kind of activated around the idea of the immigrant homeowner as the immigrant homeowner as this kind of, as somebody who, who is able to kind of take on the responsibilities and obligations of being a like, kind of productive member of society. And that's being, you know, on the one hand that's kind of being sold Via financial and real estate um, industries, but it's also, you know, very much interpolated like with uh, with ideas that migrants have or immigrants have about what they want for their future in this kind of new society in which they're living, and so the idea of like what is the good immigrant subject becomes wholly allied, um, at least in Madrid, with the kind of homeownership projects. But again, as I talk about a little bit at the beginning of the book, like homeownership in a lot of different geographical contexts is uh, very much seen as a sign of kind of full integration or assimilation and and permanence. Um, And so it's by no means, um, that's by no means a Spanish story alone. With regards to kind of liberal democracy and urban governance, I mean, homeownership. I mean, like the U.S. context, for example, homeownership is so integral to our political, social, and kind of cultural um, ideas that we have about ourselves, and is also very much ingri- like very much tied to a vision of a kind of capitalist liberal democracy as you know, creating these kinds of, it's creating kind of good capitalist subjects, right? Who are responsible for his or her own uh, plot of land and and property and that, that investment in property and um, will make him or her into kind of a good neighbor and a civically minded, um, uh, responsible, citizen right and and there are others who you know who've talked about this there's a book called there's no place like home by brian mccabe where he talks he's talking about the u.s context um and we've i mean and the, the property ownership and home ownership has now become kind of a major export across the globe uh in the smash case that it, it comes there are particularities to the, to the history of Spain under the Franco regime that give rise to the home ownership model, but it becomes also then very much allied with a model of capitalist growth um, under a totalitarian regime and, and, um, and is, again, seen as integral to the production of, like, good, I mean, first it's good subjects because they're, you know, people are under a dictatorship and then in the, the democratic era also as integral to, like, ha- kind of making European citizens. Um, and there too, you know, while we talk about home ownership as being part of, you know, creating. Responsible citizens because they care about their own immediate environments. They, you know, it's like I respect your property rights so that you respect mine. Um, And and you know, so much of the language of property rights is really, really integral to the U.S. um, political order. But we, you know, it's also fundamentally about integrating people into markets. Mm -hmm. And in a moment in which Uh, you have declining and unraveling social safety nets, um, particularly with the rise of austerity in Europe, but also just longer histories of deregulation um, and disinvestment. You know, the, the investment in a home is the primary means by which we secure kind of social reproductive needs, whether it's You know the the common adage of like using your house for an as an ATM in order to pay for unexpected healthcare costs um, or you know children's educations or other kinds of goods and services that have traditionally fallen to more robust welfare states. Uh, The house really is, you know, has all these multiple meanings. and, and not just kind of symbolic or metaphoric, but also very much tangible uh, and economic. Um, so, yeah, does that answer the question? Absolutely. <laughs> like, I don't know, I went in a lot of different directions. And, you know, and, and and what I will say, too, is, like, the subprime crisis in the United States, we also have this, this um, you know, it's hard to talk about this book in some ways without, you know, as a U.S., Author in a U.S.-based um, university, it's hard to talk about this book without making some reference to parallels in the United States um, and and the subprime crisis that occurred here. Um, you know, we also have the idea that the that foreclosures were you know against people who were buying multiple big mansions mm-hmm. in the Sun Belt or something. But in fact, the vast majority of foreclosures were taking place, um, you know, often women, people of color, older people, um, and it was, they were for refinancing Mm -hmm. and refinancing, um, you know, your mortgage in order to pay for exactly what I've mentioned, like unexpected healthcare issues, um, caring for old people and, or, you know, paying for college for, you know, a young adult, that it wasn't some sort of greedy uh, urge to buy up as many properties as possible but rather just kind of meeting the demands of everyday life
1: mm-hmm. yeah thanks so much for this answer that covers you know so much geographic um, depth and you know as I read the book I know how it speaks to sort of context other than Spain, but now I'm really glad that our listeners will uh, get to know uh, how it relates to the US, for example. Um, and my next question is sort of about what happens after uh, debt or after or in the process of homeownership. So you show us that for Indian migrant communities in Madrid, lived experiences of that. And disposition result in civil death, uh, which is, you know, a term both you and they coin. So could you explain what civil death implicates and what is at stake in painting this broader picture of disposition through this term uh, and showing us how that shapes
0: people's subjectivities and lives as a whole? Yeah, so you know, I, many scholars have discussed the ways in which debt and indebtedness is kind of woven into so much of, of daily life, whether it's, you know, student loan Mm -hmm. debt, um, and paying for college or homeownership, or most recently, like there's, um, a group of scholars in my department who is there, they're, um, studying debt amongst post, uh, like really people who've been released from prison mm-hmm. and the way in which debt kind of becomes um, a condition of extended le- networks and very much kind of conditions what life after prison is like and so debt shows up basically everywhere you want to look <laughs> um it is fundamental to our contemporary so- this society and it, of course it's like we have personal debts. There are municipal debts. There's na- there are national debts. All of these forms of debt um, produce our contemporary society essentially. Um, but I wanted to so, you know, talking about civil death, it was it was a category that people were talking about it were identify them, uh, uh, you know, for themselves. And what I realized was that, you know indebtedness and the process of dispossession, which we can think about as an economic process, right? It's something that results from signing a mortgage contract and from handing over your euros to the bank. Um, But that it it goes so far beyond just a simple question of like how much money I have in the bank and what my kind of financial future will be. Instead, it is something that really um, extends into so many different aspects of life. And so the elaboration of this category of civil death is an attempt to uh, reckon with the, uh, the very violent nature of, and the kind of insidious nature of indebtedness as it, um, it transforms relationship, you know, kinship relationships with, amongst family members, friendships, um also your relationship to kind of society as a whole um, and and thus, you know, it, it, thus meaning that that the process of losing one's home in this case but or you know, but there we can think of other processes of indebtedness and dispossession um, really uh, really kind of transforms and and in many cases, Kind of brutally rests the the debtor from from his or her kind of everyday milieu, um, and is such that it that it has very specific consequences uh, and often along lines of you know race, class, gender um, that are, is very punitive for for those who kind of suffer through this category um, and I think I mean it's a way you know there's been such a shift to the kind of financialized subject um, that that it's a means of understanding how that the consequence you know basically the kind of human consequences of that shift um, that it means that like Going broke, going into debt is such a transformative and, you know, a negative uh, process. Civil death is also a socio spatial condition, you tell us,
1: a condition that fixes migrants seeking home in place while demanding mobility. So, can you speak to the paradoxical mobilities
0: that home ownership creates? Yeah, I think. And, I think homeownership is a deeply paradoxical system, and this is precisely one of the reasons which is paradoxical, in that, um, you know, it fixes, in this case, it fixed it fixes somebody in place, but the demands of keeping one's home uh, and being able to pay one's bills and And, um, you know, not losing one's home to the bank demands a lot of hustle and drive if you're not, you know, just kind of independently wealthy. And I see this now, um, you know, I see this with my parents who own a house in San Francisco, uh, which, you know, they were fortunate to buy in the 70s at a low price, which means also now that they're kind of locked in because of strangenesses in the California tax property tax code where all around them is like changing into this kind of, you know, techno dystopia, <laughs> like extreme gentrification. And, um, and, and then, but, you know, a house requires a lot of maintenance and, you know, a lot of uh, redoing the siding and, you um, and replacing this, you know, my parents have been in this long process of replacing a skylight that was leaking and and all of these kinds of, all the labor that goes into the house, which is part of our kind of, one of the reasons why we have this ideology around home ownership is precisely because of, you know, the ideas around labor that it it also enacts. And um And so you are then tasked with all of these other kinds of um, chores and, um, and little jobs and, you know, scrounging up the money to pay for the um, repairs or, you know, in the the case of like a New York apartment, the, the co-op fees and, you know, that it's, it, it's constant work, right? It's not just retreating to your nice home and, um, and uh, hanging out, right? And then in the specific case of, my, of, of immigrants in Madrid, and I think, I mean, this is the case in a lot of places and, um, and for a lot of kind of lower middle and, and working class homeowners, you're buying, you're often a- only able to buy in places that are far away from centers of employment. And so there's then this trade-off of, you know, you you might own your own home, but you have to spend more hours um, commuting. You have to, um, you know, you you might not be able to afford to buy in amongst the community of your own people. And so, you know, well, there's kind of this illusion of permanence and stability and, and fixity, right. There is also then this whole kind of geography of movement and mobility that is necessary in order for one to have a house and, and maintain it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really important to think about. Um, And yeah, I love that you point out these tensions between fixity and mobility Uh, Another part of your work that I found particularly powerful was your chapters on the refusal of civil death, and you show us that repertoires of political action from indigenous struggles in the Andes deeply inform the refusal of civil death in Madrid. So how does indigenous politics travel to Spain and translate into political action and solidarity against dispossession?
0: So, you know, in the case of the immigrants who I work with in Madrid, it's, it's a case of quite literally indigenous members of indigenous communities, you know, who'd already been uh, faced exclusion and expulsion from um, native homelands, you know, first uh, often moving to, to Quito, in Ecuador, and then um, because of failing financial markets in Ecuador, moving to Spain. And so, you know, it's the case of indigenous, quite literally like indigenous people moving to the former metropole, um, Madrid, and bringing with them their particular traditions of activism and um, and political engagement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here, I think, we have the, I, uh, often there's this kind of idea of the, like the flaneur activist who's, you know, like the anti-globalization guy, often it's a white guy, <laughs> right? But there are all mo- different modes of political action and engagement that, that kind of travel from one place to another. And, um, and, you know, it's also that in that, in those movements from one place to another, People encounter other forms of discrimination, marginalization, dispossession, right? And so, you know, there's a process by which, you know, that that just life experience gives one a kind of arsenal of of knowledge, Um, and then, you know, because of other traditions of activism, they also have an arsenal of resistance. And so, what I talk about in the book is essentially that this community of Ecuadorians who, many of whom were indigenous and had been involved in indigenous struggles in in Ecuador um, and in the broader kind of Andean world, um, saw what was happening and saw, you know, their own own risk of foreclosure and realized that this is essentially, you know, similar practice, uh, practices of extraction and and in some ways neocolonialism um, that was producing similar kinds of uh, results and you know objection and marginalization that that they had faced in a very different you know in a very different context. Um, and so you know as one of you know one of my interlocutor, interlocutors says, you know, she sees has seen no place on earth where like getting organized around an issue does like hasn't produced some kind of result. Mm-hmm. And so that to me was really powerful. That you know it is and 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 that is a lesson too for housing movements and and housing struggles and um, precarity in many different places. I you know in New York City, um, my cousin was a is a housing attorney and. She, in my class on housing, she talked to my students about, you know, I as an attorney in a courtroom can only do so much. What's really going to do something is if the tenants in, a, in, you know, get organized against their predatory landlord. If you get together and you start organizing and you make those kinds of connections, and often it's laborious work, it's uh, not, you know, change is not going to occur immediately, but that's what produces results. And so it's this kind of you know the, uh, and it kind of embodied experience as somebody who's fought against um, different forms of predation that really influenced um, a response to the problem of foreclosures and evictions
1: that's That's really wonderful,
0: and I think that's a great takeaway
1: um, for you know our listeners who, my, themselves might be facing you know, similar issues that are really pertinent around the globe and not just uh, particular to Spain. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and discuss your methodology. Can you take us through your ethnographic fieldwork? And how did your ethnography enhance your understanding of disposition and activism? Or what were some challenges you faced during um your ethnographic field work.
0: Oh man. <laughs> First of all, there's so much that doesn't make it into a book. <laughs> all of one's like frustrations and and anxieties and um, That's what we're interested in in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know I spent I I spent on and off over a year year and a half with this with you know with the platform for people affected by mortgages in, in madrid and um and first of all I got there when it was it was a very hot hot issue it was a very hot collective there were a lot of people coming through wanting to you know do some sort of research on um this movement um but it was often, it often to me made me a little bit uncomfortable because people would come and have like a weekend to do <laughs> some sort of mini project. And it would be like, we'd like to interview, you know, an immigrant woman, preferably a single mother um, about her experiences. And so it's kind of like, oh, wow. you know, on demand. <laughs> and so my, you know, my, I made a choice early on that I was just kind of initially going to hang out and you know tell i obviously be upfront like i want to study you guys but i'm also here and i'm willing to help in whatever capacity i can mm-hmm. you know sometimes i did english language translations and stuff um and and then i really kind of wanted to just get to know people and get to know the work that they mm-hmm. were doing uh, and this before i ever even asked for an interview right like just just show that you know because And really, it's also, I I was intrigued and engaged in their struggle, not just because I had to write a dissertation, but because I was genuinely just, you know, very inspired and also curious about um, how they were, you know, how they were, you know, succeeding in, in, um, this very kind of hostile political climate and uh, preventing people from losing their homes. Um, I think, you know, it's hard, any kind of process of ethnographic immersion uh, requires, there there are periods of boredom, (laughs) there are periods of frustration, Um, there's inevitably a period of where you're kind of stumbling along blind, too afraid to even kind of really step a toe into what is your field so to speak um and and then there are you know there's all of the there's so much that doesn't make it into this book and a lot of that is and very endemic to activism and kind of politics like interpersonal conflicts conflicts and competing forms of activism which i talk a little bit about in the final chapter and i have a an article that came out um, about five years ago in society and space that does more it's more an attempt to, to draw out some of the the conflicts and, and contradictions of different modes of activism um, and but some of that is just like some of that is just inevitable and and then I realized but this is a lot of its background noise and it's not it's not important to the story that I want to tell um, at, at, that doesn't mean, like, you go and invent the story you want to tell, but that, that there are inevitably other narratives, other kinds of tangents that one can go down, but that might not be um, the most fruitful sources and sites of analysis for um, the kinds of questions that I was asking. Mm-hmm. So.
1: I love how you point out, you know, particular challenges of... Um, studying urban contexts that are in demand, so to speak. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, as an anthropologist who conducted fieldwork in a, you know, quote-unquote, over research study, I also, you know, witnessed a lot of people demanding a certain kind of interviewee on demand, and I really appreciate yeah. that you pointed out the importance of really, you know, valuing moments and participating in... Um, overcoming social problems that are of interest yeah. to us uh, and maybe go beyond interest. So I really appreciated that. And you know I also love your approach to archival work uh, sort of in this in this thread. So you tell us in the book that you created an archive of advertisements that promote home home ownership as well as documents and flyers that activists used. Um, can you tell us about how archive making emerged as a research practice for you, and how did this process uh, figure into your work?
0: Yeah, so way back when <laughs> uh, I was a baby historian, I my my undergraduate degree is in in history, and um, while there were a lot of things that I didn't love about my undergraduate education in history, I did love uh and think that it provided a really robust training in archival Mm -hmm. research um and so i do you know i resist the urge which is can be very present in urban scholarship of a lot of presentism right like i these you know these kinds of situations emerge from lengthy Mm -hmm. histories and particularly in the case of eviction, which I, I mentioned, I think, in the introduction of the book, like, eviction is the punctuation of a much longer process. Mm-hmm. And so it needs to be kind of historically um, situated. Mm-hmm. We need to understand what has happened up to the point that means that evictions are taking place. Um, and then, you know, part of my effort to understand the climate of immigrant um the acquisition of, of homes, um, and having lived in Madrid in the same moment, I you know I was cognizant of there being this kind of entire kind of political and cultural economy of acquisition, and so it's like you can rely on what people tell you, but I knew that there was more out there that might that might um, kind of flesh out. The realities of what it was like living in Madrid in 2005 um, as an immigrant, and you know, because it, inevitably, like, well, how do we even how do these immigrants even know to buy homes? Where do they go? What is you know what's going on? And so, um, I I spent uh, I spent the better part of a month in the National Library of Spain with the Archives of Latino, which was a free weekly newspaper um, that had very large circulations in Madrid as well as Valencia and Barcelona. Um, And I looked through every single issue that I could find that was, and and these are not well-cupped records. And in fact, I've even tried to, I've talked to the publisher of that newspaper who also like they don't have very well kept records of their own archives. And so it was a process of just sitting there and kind of making notes and, um, and also surreptitiously taking little photos of, um, of images with my iPhone. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and, and investing the time. Mm -hmm. I mean like so much of research, I think, to do good research, you just, you have to dedicate a lot of time to things that may or may not bear fruit. Um, and in this case, I had a fairly good idea that that was going to, that was going to provide something um, pretty interesting. Uh, and, and it did. Um, so. I agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and one of the big things, I mean, and I will say, the big challenge then was when the book entered into production, I had had a planned trip to Madrid to get proper reproductions of these images. And because of COVID, it was just mm-hmm. impossible. And um, I had a kind of long and very frustrating back and forth with the, the um, librarians there. And um yeah. And so some of those old iPhone pictures have made it into the final <laughs> book. <laughs> but, uh, Wonderful. Yeah. I'll, I'll be looking back at the book to see. <laughs> yes.
1: To see which ones made it. Um, yeah. <laughs> lastly, what is next for you? What are uh, some new projects or questions in which you're interested currently?
0: You know, so this project really. Clarified for me an interest in um, kind of the role of urban property in in shaping our social worlds, right? Um, And I think we see that, certainly we've seen that in the last year in terms of uh, COVID and the disparate outcomes that are brought about by just highly precarious and insecure housing systems, whether it's in... um, New York in outer boroughs like Queens or in, um, you know, places in the global South and in India or um, South Africa. Um, and so I have done a little bit of work and have been toying with a project that's specifically about kind of immigrants and and housing insecurity in the age of COVID-19 in Madrid and, and New York. Um, In part because I feel like I'm particularly well-situated knowing a lot of the grassroots infrastructures that exist in in Madrid and and having gained a little bit of familiarity with the the New York landscape too. Um, But I'm actually kind of about to embark on a new project that emerged at the end of this book where, you know, so much of this book is the ways in which homeownership can go completely wrong. And in my life, and I've mentioned my parents and their and their um, house, in my life, homeownership has actually like been an incredible source of stability and, and now wealth because my parents bought a house in San Francisco in the 70s. Um, never, you know, who expects that then 40 years later, it's going to be worth just huge amounts of money because of gentrification mm-hmm. and and the primacy of investment in real estate. And so I've begun to do this project that's actually kind of on my parents' generation of homeowners who are largely like artists, writers, the kind of Bohemian Californians who were making San Francisco their their home in the late uh, 70s and early 80s. Um, and their relationship to kind of questions around NIMBYism and gentrification and, um, and the kinds of politics that is produced through home ownership, um, and and then also like its paradoxical outcomes of having been able, in the in their case like having been able to secure some sort of intergenerational transfer of wealth, but it's also at the expense of kind of a concomitant intergenerational transfer of like community and and urban urban sociality, right? My generation can no longer have, you know, we can't be artists and writers and Bohemians in San Francisco <laughs> in the same way that um, my parents were and are. Um, and so that's been a source of um, kind of this recent line of inquiry uh, that also has, is interested in the um, kind of transformation of, of San Francisco and, and um, But, you know, having written a book about Madrid and having invested so much of my kind of intellectual curiosity in Madrid and looking back at at some of the stuff I've produced, I'm like, wow, I know so much about this place (laughs) that it seems like I'll have to go back there and do more work there um, at some point, too. These
1: are all very exciting. We're all looking forward to the books or articles or whatever comes out of these uh, new projects Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> so thank you very much, Dr. Ganek, yeah. for joining us and your insights. I'm your host, Alizar This discussion of dispossession and descent, immigrants and the struggle for housing in Madrid, published by Stanford University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago.